Mark chapter 15, verses 1 through 5. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes in the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. All right. Thank you, honey. I don't always get to say thank you, honey, when somebody reads scripture, but when your wife does it, you get to. So um, welcome, everybody. Good to have you all here this morning. My name is Dave. I'm the lead pastor here at Redemption Church Tucson. And um, just by way of introduction, um, I have a stutter. So um, just so you know and you're not confused, it's not the freezing, frigid temperatures. Um, I got my old man sweater on, so I'm all good on that front. But anyway, just so you know what that is, it'll kind of come in and out as we go. And um, we're going to get into it here pretty quickly, but um, I want to say again, as has been said, if you're new, welcome. We're really, really glad that you're here. And um, I just want to say, if you look around and you feel like you don't look like the majority of the people here, um, come up and introduce yourself to me afterward. Um, If you're new, I want to get to know you anyway, but um, we love that we are a college-heavy church. We, We love the U of A, um, we love that we get to be so close to the school, but we know that Tucson, and specifically downtown Tucson, is a, is a larger demographic than that, and so though we love the U of A, even after nights like last night, when a bunch of spoiled children, the University of Spoiled Children, beat us, um, we still love the U of A, and, um, and, uh, uh, but, but again, if, you, um, if you're new, we want to get to know you, so um, you know, sometimes someone will come up and be like, everyone here is 14 years old. And I'm like, that is not true. I have a beard. It has gray in it. And I'll prove it. So come up and, and introduce yourself. I'll show you that. But we do um, are excited about what God has been doing here in our church. And as we continue to grow and continue to uh, reflect and, and, and speak the good news of Jesus to the surrounding demographic, we're just excited to see God really continuing to form us as a church in that, and so um, last week we got to take a break from the gospel according to Mark, and um, we've been marching through Mark. We've been working our way through it for almost a year, and we have three weeks left in Mark. And so this week we're going to get right back into it. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and meet me in Mark chapter 15. And as we've said kind of all along, uh, when we get into a new chapter, you can turn to your neighbor, say welcome to chapter 15. And um, if you don't have a Bible, Hold your hand up high. If you don't have a Bible with you today, hold it up high and somebody will get you a Bible. Hold it up and keep it up. And um, also, también si necesitas la Biblia en español, solamente diga español. So someone will get you a Bible in Spanish. We want. And if you don't own a Bible, keep this. Okay, This is our gift to you. So we want to make sure that everybody has a Bible and can uh, follow along and read God's Word. And so as we're getting there, let me just bring us up to speed in case you have a real short-term memory. And since we took a week off of Mark last week, if you're, you completely forgot everything we've covered or you're new, let me just bring us up to speed. Um, Jesus has made some massive claims in the very beginning of Mark and all throughout. And the author, Mark, really wants us to kind of start out on, on, a, on a high note. And, it's, and, it, and it begins, 
the beginning of the good news of Jesus. Uh, the good news is the gospel. The beginning of the good news of Jesus, the Son of God. And so right from the start, this is an invitation to kind of lean in and perk up and to hear, like, this is a major, um, a major announcement. It has been made. And so, so there's kind of some bold claims, and you're invited to lean in. And then just a couple verses later, Jesus says, um, Behold, the, the kingdom of heaven is at hand or is among you. Repent and believe the good news. And so again, there's this bold claim that says, The kingdom of heaven is breaking in. So, so lean in. So these bold claims come, and then throughout, though, Jesus says some other stuff that people are really, really confused by. And even you and I as the audience, if we're honest with ourselves, I think as we've walked through Mark, we've gotten to be more honest and said, yeah, that doesn't make so much sense to me. Specifically when he says stuff about the cross. When he says stuff like, I'm going to the cross. And even his own friends say, no, 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 don't, don't say that. They rebuke him. And even his own followers and even you and I, if we're honest, when he says stuff like, take up your cross and follow me. And when he says that, that he's bringing his kingdom in a victorious um, like manifestation of his power through the cross, that's confusing. And, and, and we don't hear it. We don't see it rightly. So I'm going to pray for us right now as we get into it. I want to pray because I believe that we need God to soften our hearts. And that we need to, we need to be in a place right now where we can rightly come before the cross of Jesus. Even as I preach through, I want to encourage you to look at the cross. It's up here. It's up here every week. But even this week, to look at it and consider what we're seeing and, and ask yourself, does that define my life in every way? So let me pray for us as we continue on. Lord, thank you for um, your word. Thank you for this time that we get to spend in it. Um, Lord, I don't know where everybody's coming from this morning. I know we all have a lot of different things happening. And some of us were up late last night watching the game. And some of us are in different things going on in our lives that would get in the way and would maybe struggle um, to, to be present right now. Lord, those things are important. And yet they, they need to be informed by what we're going to be talking about today. So I pray that you will, that you will give us clear eyes to see and, and clear ears to hear and soft hearts to receive what you call good news, what you call life-shaping news um, that has to do with what you have done on the cross. Lord, will you um, reveal that clearly to us this morning? And we pray and we are expecting to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. So the cross. Um, my guess is some of you have the cross on right now. You're probably wearing it as a necklace or a piece of jewelry. Um, I know I bought my now wife when we were dating and courting. I bought her different crosses. I'd travel to different places and buy her, you know, silver crosses and maybe fake diamond. You know, I was a college student. No, I was about to buy some some diamonds, but you know, um, whatever it might be, like it's it's a jewelry. It's a piece of jewelry, and for many of us. It's a symbol. And I would guess that the majority of people would say, yeah, it's a religious symbol. But as we really dig in, what it really means, what, it, what it's really all about is probably pretty confusing to us. And yet, 
We just take the time because it's become a pretty normal part of our culture, unlike actually the early church right here. The cross was not a religious symbol that was neat and cute and, you know, diamond encrusted and silver lined and all these things. It was not that at all. And in fact, the meaning of it, we, we need to do some work to understand. But let's be honest in, in how much we can become numb to um, things as important as the cross. I, what what kind of came to mind for me, I've gotten to do some um, traveling overseas. Me and my wife got to go all over the w- w- world over the last like 10 or so years. We got, to, we got to preach the gospel and go to different countries. In one culture in particular, you learn different things in different places. But one culture in particular, it was really cool to have um, English words on your shirt, like on your clothing. And that's about where it stopped. Like as long as it was English and as long as it was words put together in some form, it was cool. And so you would see people wearing shirts that were cool, that had English on it. But if you knew the language pretty well, if you knew that that wasn't just a, a social status thing, you would kind of, you would scratch your head and be like, well, I don't think they get what they're really wearing. Um, I, there are a lot of examples. One in particular that comes to mind and that I actually have um, and in their kind of tagline of this company, it said, one polar originate from polar. And, and that was it. And this was like this brand, you wear it, and, and people didn't know that to us, we'd be like, that, I don't even know what that means right there. Polar, I don't And yet, um, let's be real though, okay? Let's not just get off of our high horse here for a minute. Okay, tattoos, right? I don't know if uh, like Chinese symbols are as cool right now as they were. When I was in college in the late 90s, I remember friends on my, on my sports team, rugby team, people would wear, get a big Asian, you know, alphabet kind of symbol. And I remember some of my buddies I took and they got them on their neck. And, and um, I, I'm, I guess, or, or okay, we're in a Christian context, right? Maybe Greek or Hebrew, probably more likely, right? Some of us here probably have some Greek or Hebrew on our skin, and um, I guess most of us have kind of done the hard work to know what it actually says, right? And hopefully you have. You've cross-referenced. You've asked professionals. you said, dude, don't lie to me. Like, does this say what I think it says? But I am sure there have got to be some people walking around this world with Chinese characters or Hebrew or Greek or something else that if they knew what it actually said, they wouldn't be too, uh, too proud. Like some dude's got like on his bicep some Chinese you know, symbol that's like, says something, you know, that uh, questions his manhood or something. That's got to be the case. Well, I think the cross has become that to some degree for us today. And so what we're going to do, we're going to dig in, we're going to look at Jesus as he marches toward the cross to understand what it really is. Because before it's a religious symbol of some kind, the the cross, as people would have understood it in the Roman world that day, was a political statement. And the cross, what it was, is it was Rome declaring to the world the greatest power that the world had ever known. It was Rome saying, if you mess with us, that's what you will face. This is saying, we will put you in your place. We will hang you on that cross. And it was shameful and ugly and despicable. In fact, like upper class Roman citizens wouldn't even say the word cross. There was a symbol or they would say different things even to refer to the cross. And so people did not just talk about this. It wasn't diamond encrusted. It wasn't this kind of beautiful thing. It was ugly and despicable. 
And I remember somebody saying one time, kind of in their mind, being, being negative, being like, if Jesus would have died today, would you wear an electric chair around your neck? Or if he was killed by a firing squad, would you wear a gun around your neck? And this guy thought he was... And some other people were offended and thought that's what this guy was trying to do. But I think he's, he was on to something. It's a good question. Because really, this is a, a death sentence. And it's a symbol of that. And so what Jesus did, though, he made it known from the very beginning. He came to die. And it's a good thing that this symbol would define our lives, that we would wear it on our skin or on our neck or wherever it would be. But we need to rightly understand what it is. What the cross is, is a clear picture of God exposing that he is the greatest power in the world. That even the power of Rome, that even the power of every other empire the world would ever know, he has toppled it. And it's also a place where we look and we see the shame and the brokenness and the ugliness of sin. This sin, simply put, is not God. Sin is simply saying, God, all that you stand for, my identity, my purpose, our relationships, our world... All that that is, we're going to turn our back. We want to figure it out on our own. And then that unfolded throughout the course of human history when we turned our back on God. Sin entered into the world and it came to this point where you look there and you see, um, you see shame, you see grotesque brutality, you see human relationships, you see abandonment. We've talked about some of these things. As Jesus marches toward this, he does it knowingly because he came to die in the most despicable and yet the only way possible to undo the broken effect of sin and destruction in the world today. And so that's the background of what we're going to read today. So as we pick up in Mark 15, verse 1, I invite you, I encourage you, if you're a note taker, you can take notes, but, but perhaps maybe this is a day where you sit there and you occasionally give yourself the freedom to look up and look at the cross as we walk through these things and consider, does that define my life? Or has it just become a symbol that's kind of cute and pretty, but doesn't really inform everything about who I am and what I do? So with that, let's pick up in 15 verse 1. And as soon as it was, <laughs> excuse me, as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and they led him away and they delivered him over to Pilate. And so what happens here, if you remember, the, 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 the Jewish authorities, the chief priests, if you will, that were offended by Jesus. Everyone has been offended by Jesus. And as I said, we need to give ourselves the freedom to admit where we're offended by Jesus. And I hope that we're kind of face to face with that today. And so the, the, um, the religious authorities were offended by Jesus to the point where he was, he was questioning and challenging their authority. And so they wanted to put him to death. But they didn't have the power to put somebody to death in that time. Rome had taken that power. They were under Roman rule. And so what they need to do is they need to manipulate Rome and the authorities therein to get Jesus killed. And so, so the Jewish authorities, remember, they conspired together. And a couple times Jesus kind of shot holes in their argument. They didn't even agree with one another. And they would go back, oh, shoot, hey, remember, you're supposed to say this. And then you say that and then. Don't steal his part. He can, and they, they just don't get it right. And they're bumbling all along. 
And so they continue to do that. But they wake up early in the morning. They're like, guys, this is the time. We're going to go deliver Jesus to Rome, the, the Roman ruler here, to Pilate. Now let's get this story right. And so that's what they're doing. They're conspiring. They're getting their story straight. And they go before Rome to try to get, um, to manipulate Rome to have Jesus killed once and for all. And then picking up in verse 2, they deliver him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. So let's understand what's going on here a little bit. Okay, so Jesus has been arrested. He's been beaten. He's been betrayed by his closest followers. And then right now he's delivered to the Roman power that, has, that seemingly holds his life in his hands. And Pilate looks at him and says, are you the king of the Jews? And this is likely not, he's not worshiping Jesus. He's not, he's probably, as we'll see even later on, he's kind of got a mocking tone because Jesus has already had his garments torn. His beard has been, you know, plucked out a bit. He hasn't slept. He's, he's not, he doesn't look very royal. And so Pilate is hanging out there and he's like, are you the king of the Jews? He's kind of mocking Jesus and mocking Judaism. He's mocking the God of Israel. And he's sitting there and he's smirking at him. He says, are you this king? And Jesus says, you've, you've said so. Right? He doesn't give an all-out affirmation. He's not like, yes, I am. Tell these guys to let me go. Like, Jesus doesn't do that. But he stands confidently and poised and he says, you've said so. Because he is the king of the Jews, but not the way Pilate in his smugness is implying that he's the king of the Jews. He's the king of the world. He's the creator of everything. Yes, Jesus is the king of the Jews, but not just a king of a particular group of people. Not one God of many gods that are all working toward the same place. He will, we're told all throughout the scriptures, there is one God and there will be no others in his midst. There is one king and that's the bold proclamation that Jesus has been making from the very beginning. That he alone is the king and his kingdom alone will last forever and he will undo all the kingdoms of this world. And yet he's standing before Pilate here and Pilate in all his smugness says, are you, this, are you a king, a small petty king? And Jesus is like, yeah, yeah, you've, you've said so. I am the king. But Pilate, even in Roman um, terms, is really not, he's not Caesar. He's more like a mall cop, you know? Call Barth, was that it? Mall cop. Um, it's no offense, if you're a security guard at an establishment of, you know, mall security places, or um, no offense to that, right? But we all know, we all joked probably in high school, we're hanging out at the mall. If you guys do that anymore this day, I don't know. We used to hang out at the mall. But if, you know, when kids are hanging out at the mall and you kind of joke, is that a heel cop or is that a mall cop? Well, Pilate's more of a mall cop, okay? He's in an outpost, a Roman outpost in the desert in Jerusalem, far away from everything. And he doesn't really want to be where he is. But in this place, he's the big dog, right? He's got the authority and he has the authority to hold Jesus' life or to take it. And yet Jesus is the authority. And he's standing there confidently, and it's as, if, it's as if Pilate would say, you see, the sun rises and the sun sets, and that's my kingdom. That's what I rule over. 
And even if that's not true for Pilate, he does have the authority there. Even if Caesar himself, right, it's once said that the sun is always shining on the Roman Empire. There are all these sayings, it was so vast and so great that, that the sun shined. But Jesus can stand and be like, wow, that's pretty, that's pretty impressive. But that sun, um, I made it. The, the breath that you are challenging me with right now, I put that in your lungs. That's who's standing before this mockery and before this questioning. And so, yes, he affirms for you and I, for the audience to see he is indeed the king of all things. But then the accusations continue to fly and these chief priests are like, he said this, he did this, he, he did this. And Pilate is there and Jesus is just kind of standing there confidently. And Pilate's amazed at it. And he says, are you not going to give any more defense for what they're saying against you? And Jesus just stands there silently. And this is a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy in Isaiah chapter 53 that said that he would stand there before his accusers and would not even say a word, that he would remain silent. But in so doing, if you remember, Jesus is confidently sitting here before Pilate, judge, getting a life sentence, and he doesn't, he doesn't have to answer. He doesn't have to give an answer. He doesn't have to defend himself. You or I definitely would. Let's be honest with ourselves. But remember when Jesus was praying in the garden before his father and he cried out, Dad, Abba, if there's any other way, let it be so. He says, but not your will, not my will, but your will. Whatever you ordain to happen, let it be so. I submit to you, I will do whatever needs to be done. And that's exactly what's happening here. And Jesus has that full confidence. So he's not going to give an argument. Because he knows that the only way for sin, for betrayal, for destruction, for hurt, for pain, for death to be dealt with is the way that God had ordained, that God had planned from the very beginning, before the earth was even created, God's redemptive story and his plan that has been laid out. Jesus knows that's the way it has to be. So he stands there authoritatively and confidently. In contrast, as we'll see, to Pilate and, and to others as they interact. And they seem to be scrambling and frantic. And yet Jesus stands there and he doesn't give a defense. Because he knows that what he has come to do is to lay down his life. And to put death and shame to death through a very shameful death on the cross. And Pilate's amazed at this. Again, likely not worshipful, but he's, he's intrigued. And then picking up in verse 6. Now at the feast, he used, to, he used to release for them one prisoner from whom, for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. So Pilate here is looking for an out, alright? Let's be clear again, Pilate doesn't love Jesus, he doesn't worship him, he's looking for an out. Everybody is looking out for their own skin right now. The Jewish authorities see that Jesus is a challenge to them, so they deliver him up to be killed. Pilate, his main goal right now is to avoid um, you know, the people getting upset, getting fired up, getting riled up, and rioting, and he wants to avoid that at all costs. So he sees Jesus, he's heard of him, he's standing before them, Jesus won't give him an out, and won't be like, these guys are lying, you can let me go, and I believe Pilate would have let him go. Jesus could have 
taken and out many times on his march toward the cross. And yet he sits there and he just sits there and he, and he lets the Father's plan unfold. And so Pilate looks at the crowds and says, Oh yeah, sometimes during festivals I let somebody go, one of your people go. So clearly you want this guy, your king, your ridiculous king who's right here in front of me and your ridiculous religion. Clearly you want this guy, right? Because he knew that the, that the chief priests have, have, have conspired. He could tell that they weren't fully truthful in what they're saying. And so he's like, do you guys want me to let this guy go? And yet they get riled up. And, and they want this guy Barabbas, who was an insurrectionist. Because remember, we talked about within the last couple of weeks that during certain festivals, they would remember what God had done, and that would inform what God would do. And during this particular festival, it's a time of Passover. And do you guys remember what happened during the, the, the Passover? Yeah, God passes over the sins of His people. But what they would have in mind even, even more than that, they would remember that God would deliver His people from slavery. And, the, and that the Egyptian people had, had put a yoke of bondage around around Israel, and they were enslaved, and their life was not defined by worshiping God, but by, by doing whatever their, their, their rulers had put over them. And so God would, would free them. And so he, 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 remember, he parted the Red Seas, and he let, you know, let my people go, and his people went. And so year in and year out, they would celebrate the festival of the Passover, and they would remember that one day God would deliver his people from bondage and, and shame and shackles and sin. And he would, he would let them go. And remember though, they thought that meant, yeah, God, deal with these Roman, Roman infidels, these pagans. Would you let us, deal with all these people, judge everyone else and let us be free. And so year in and year out, as Passover came around, they thought, God, is this the time? Is this the time when you're going to deliver us from slavery? Okay, enter into your own life right now. If you're struggling, you're, you're wondering, God, is this the moment? Is this the moment where you're going you're gonna to let me free, where you're going to let me go? Is this the time I've committed all these sins and I walk in this shame? Is this high moment, this spiritual high where I make a bold proclamation and do, well, you know, pull myself up by my bootstraps? Is this the moment where I'm going to be free, where I'm going to be established and I'm going to honor you and worship you with my life? And time and time again, God says, yes, I am a God who's come to deliver, but not the way you think. I'm not here to, I'm not here to undo Rome. I'm not here to just judge Rome and then let you do what you want to do. I'm here to release all my people from the bondage of sin. I'm here to undo the shackles of slavery, not just of Roman rule, but of sinful desire and oppression. I'm here to undo what you have chosen to live your life apart from me. And, and, and the people don't get this. And they see Barabbas as a symbol. Maybe this insurrectionist. He's committed murder. But he did it for the sake of Israel. He, he, he rose up against Rome. And he tried to topple Rome with his own hands. And they think maybe if this guy gets set free. Jesus, whatever. We, we forget about him. He keeps talking about this cross business. Let's, let's kind of forget about him. But Barabbas. Maybe Barabbas will lead us into the promised land. Maybe God will use Barabbas to deliver us from Rome and they miss Jesus and the bold claims that he has come to undo the yoke of slavery and they choose Barabbas 
And so the high priests are out there getting the crowd riled up. And so Pilate says, well, what about Jesus? And in verse 11, but the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And in verse 12, and Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with the man that you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. Let's kind of settle in here for a moment and understand what's been happening. The crowd is riled up and fired up and Pilate's like, but what about this guy? He hasn't done anything wrong. And Pilate is just looking to save his own skin. He's confused. But he's like, what, why do you want this guy to go? Why, why won't you just let Jesus be free? And it's not because he loves or worships Jesus. It's because he doesn't want them to get, to get to, to riot and to get mad. And so he thinks that they love Jesus, but clearly they don't. And he says, well, well what do you want me to do with him? And they just say, crucify him, crucify him. And so he releases for them Barabbas. Again, let's pause and remember here. That Jesus could have had an easy out. He could have escaped this death in a moment. Because do you remember that from the very beginning, these crowds who are shouting out, crucify him. This term crowds has been used so many times throughout Mark. And we've seen the crowds, right? We're a church plant, right? We want crowds, more crowds, more crowds. And we've talked about this before. No, we're going to stay true to the word of God and what God has proclaimed. And we pray that more and more people will come and hear and respond to the gospel, but, but crowds aren't always a good thing because you can become um, uh, like a circus act for the, the crowds. And Jesus, our, our lead pastor, if you will, our, our, our high priest, the head of his church, we, we look to his example and we see that the crowds constantly want to manipulate him to do as he would have them do. And at first they're entertained. They're like, Jesus, heal this person. Jesus, come and do these things. Jesus, do your tricks. And he does them often. He heals the people. But then he almost simultaneously exposes the crowds want to use God for their agenda. And remember, we see Jesus turning that on his head in the garden when he says, Father, not my will, but your will. So he doesn't submit to anyone's will, but the plan of God and the will of the Father. And so Jesus says, um, Lord, I, I, Father, I have come to do whatever you would do. And the crowds don't like that. And the crowd's like, Jesus, if you just be a palatable Jesus, Jesus, if you would just be a comfortable Jesus, Jesus, if you'd just be a Sunday Jesus, amen, anybody? Then, 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 then we'll accept you. We'll worship with you. But don't mess with all that we've got going on here. Don't speak into our lives. And so the crowds that you and I are a part of eventually reject Jesus. And he could have avoided that with just a couple little tweaks to his whole way of doing things. But he loves you and me too much. He loves the world too much to give us anything other than who he has declared himself to be. The king of the kingdom. And the same is true for the religious authorities. They're like, Jesus, we love you. We will let you be our religious ruler if you'll just do things the way we want. We've got all these religious rules. Will you, will you, will you affirm us? Give us a place. Tell, tell everybody else to obey our rules and we will elevate you and we will set you up on high. Maybe we'll even call you the Messiah. Maybe if you don't, don't mess with our agenda too much. And of course, Jesus will not 
be, be, will not be conformed in such a way. And so the religious authorities are eventually angered by him. He calls them all kinds of things. He exposes their sinful agenda, right? And they eventually turn on him. And even his closest friends do the same. Do you remember just not weeks ago we've seen his closest friends say things like, Hey Jesus, when your kingdom comes, can I sit on your right and can I sit on your left? Can, can we be your, your, your go-to people? Jesus, when you, bring, when you finally bring out the sword that we're confident you're going to bring at some point and you undo all this Roman rule, can we be right there with you? Can you give us a place of promise? And that's where Jesus says, um, you, you don't know what you're asking. You, you're going to need to lay down your life just as I will. And his closest friends are like, I don't, I don't know that, Jesus. And they abandon him and they turn their back on him. And now Rome even. Jesus could have avoided death on the cross if he would have just pushed back and be like, look, this whole king that you're talking about, I'm not here to, I'm here, I'm a religious, I'm not a political person. I'm not here to talk about Rome and taxes and way of life in every way. I'm just, I'm a Jewish rabbi. I'm a religious person. I don't get my hands dirty with all that, but Jesus has a bigger plan. He will not settle. So hear me, look at me. Are, Are you trying to get Jesus to settle for something other than Lord of all in your life? Because that's who he came to establish himself as the true king ruling over a perfect and beautiful kingdom where the full effects of sin and destruction and treason against God are undone once and for all. And that won't come about through any kind of a palatable Jesus. But Jesus as he comes in full is the only way. And we see that as he stands unwavering, unmoving before Roman judgment. And so Pilate is confused and he says, well, who do you guys want me to let go? All I want is to avoid a fight because I'm going to get in trouble for it up ahead. I'm just a mall cop. If there's a fight, I'm going to get my job taken from me. They're going to bring in someone else. And he's just looking for an out. And they yell out, Barabbas, give us Barabbas. What about Jesus? Crucify him. Put that guy on a cross, a shameful, ugly cross. Give us Barabbas. And do you know who Barabbas is? He's you and me. The name Barabbas means something that he is not. He's an imposter. Barabbas means son of the father. Son of the father. Remember, we've learned that bar or ben in the Hebrew language means son of. So sometimes, you know, Jesus would be called Jesus ben Joseph or Jesus bar Joseph, the son of Joseph and that, or and it, but only, only, um, there's only one true um, Bar Abba, the Son of God. And remember, Jesus in the garden calls out, Abba, Dad, if there's any other way, let it be so, but I'm your Son. And now, if you remember again in, in the very beginning in Mark chapter 1, when Jesus is baptized, the heavens peel back, and who speaks? The Father, the Heavenly Father speaks and Jesus is baptized. He comes out of, the wa- out of the water and the Father speaks to Jesus and He says, You are my beloved Son and you I am pleased. 
And then later on, when Jesus is presented alongside Elijah and Moses in what is called the transfiguration, who speaks up? This time, not just to Jesus, but to his friends that are there. The heavens peel back and Almighty God, the King of all things, the Creator of the world, speaks and says, this, this right here, this is my Son, my Beloved. I delight in Him. Listen to what He's telling you. Because through Him comes life. And yet in this moment, an imposter is standing there. Barabbas, Bar Abba, the son of the father. And yet the true Barabbas, the true son of the father, stands there submitting to his will on his way to the cross. And we see a great exchange there. Don't miss this. We see a massive exchange happening where the guilty... He's already committed murder. It's no, this guy Barabbas is, is guilty. He deserves judgment. And yet he gets set free. And yet the innocent, the true son of God, Jesus, is, is counted as guilty. And he gets the judgment. And he goes to the cross. And so right there we have a great exchange. If you're new to this whole deal, this is what happens. There's some big words used for this justification or expiation or propitiation or all these shuns. But what's simply happening here is you have God, the Father, and the Judge, the one that we have all by nature and by choice chosen to commit treason against. We've essentially given the middle finger and said, I don't want life or identity or purpose or anything to be defined. I don't want to bear your image as you have said you want me to bear. So I'm going to go my own way. Guilty. Guilty, alright? If you are here in this room, by nature and by choice, you are guilty. And there is shame, and there is judgment, and there is consequence that I guess, for many of us, is resting heavily on our shoulders. And if not, if you just kind of have minimized it like we tend to do, perhaps it needs to sit heavily Though sin is not just slipping up. It's not just taking another glance. It's not, I messed up. I made some bad choices before. I'm, I'm playing around. I'm messing around. No. Adultery, judgment, sin, idolatry, choosing other gods. All of this is where we stand as Barabbas, guilty, imposters, broken image bearers of God. And yet God says that on Him He has laid the iniquity of us all. The judgment that you and I deserve He has laid on Jesus. And I could end right here, guys, and we would all get that. I think a lot of us understand that. We understand that exchange that we get a get-out-of-hell-free card. You get a get-out-of-jail-free card. Barabbas was let go, all right? And it wasn't, though, this, like, Barabbas coming. It's like, all right, get out of here. You're still a thief. You're still a mongrel. But you pulled a fast one. Loophole, right? Loophole on God, this whole Jesus thing. But now I'm going to still live as I once was. Now I'm going to still live as a murderer, as a thief. And we carry this shame and this burden and this guilt on us. And we're, we're forgiven. And it's as if God just says, all right, fine. I've already judged Jesus, so I guess I can't judge you too, but get out of my sight. But that's not what happens in this great exchange. Now you and I get to be Barabbas. That through faith in Jesus, that delight that the Father has shown His Son, He gives to you and to me. And He says, in you I am well pleased. I see 
spotlessness. I see shamelessness. I see forgiveness. I accept you fully. I forget your sin. I forget your shame. Because Jesus is released to be scourged by Pilate. And he goes to be crucified. And sometimes when we think of this right now, we miss it. We miss the good gift that we are being given because of the shame and the judgment that Jesus is taking on. Because we, we kind of picture Jesus now maybe like William Wallace, you know, Braveheart, if you've seen that, or any of these movies, The Gladiator, whatever it is, and it ends with this scene, kind of a Christ figure taking on the judgment. And, and it's usually in kind of a respectful kind of way, right? And so we picture like William Wallace there and he's somehow still able to flex his muscles and sweat is glistening and he's dying and his shirt is ripped open, of course, because it's Mel Gibson. He always wants his shirt off and he's got his shirt off and he's buff and, and he calls out freedom and it's still kind of a respectful way to go, right? It's like, yeah, I mean, that's cool if, you're, if you have to go and you have to lay down your life like this, like do it in an honorable way. And we think that that's what Jesus is doing. And Mark intentionally spares us of all the gory details of what's going on here so that he can, so that he can leave us with the shame. Simply put, Jesus led away to be crucified for the original audience that you and I have to get is absolutely saturated in shame. From this point on, when you're scourged, you're likely stripped completely naked. You're not flexing your muscles. You're not in this powerful way. People are throwing stuff at you. People are despising you. People are, are having their kids turn away from you. You are next to the most despicable in the world. And this is how Jesus goes. And when you're scourged, you're put in an awkward position. And a Roman torture device is whipped across you. And you're, you're, it is ugly and despicable. And as we close here, what you and I need to get is that this great exchange is not simply, okay, fine, yeah, Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Go, go, and, go and do whatever you would do. Have a cross, whatever. When we rightly understand the exchange that is happening here, where that you and I, deserving the shame that many of us are carrying the sin that we have committed, the sins that have been committed against us, the judgment that we rightly deserve and I pray is weighing heavily on every one of us needs to be there. But Jesus, the true Barabbas, the Son of the Father, in whom He delights and is well pleased, would take your and my place, not just taking the judgment, but taking the shame, taking the guilt, taking the separation, taking the broken identity, taking the broken purpose, and restoring it. Because in Him and Him alone there is life, and there is life in the full. And as we'll look at in a couple coming weeks, as Jesus raises victoriously from the dead, He is showing that He has put all of that to death. That through His death, He puts that to death. And so now we're left, well, so what? So first and foremost, I want to encourage you don't minimize sin. Look at the cross. Look at all of the world's brokenness on display in all its ugly forms that you've experienced, that you've witnessed, that you've chosen in so many ways. And understand 
that Jesus took that upon Himself so that you can be called beloved son or daughter, so that you can be accepted freely, so that there is now no more shame and no more condemnation for those who are found in Christ Jesus. So don't try to justify yourself. Don't try to say, I'll try to get better. Don't try to say, this is the day. Just let me, God, give me one more chance. I'll prove you right. I'll no longer look at that. I'll no longer smoke that. I'll no longer do that. I'll no longer X, Y, or Z. Don't go there because that is still trying to justify yourself. But look to the only way that the exchange can happen is by Jesus willingly putting his life down and taking your and my shame upon himself and putting it to an end. And then we simply respond. What would it look like to live a life in response to the good news of Jesus? What would it look like for your identity to be informed and defined by what Jesus has done? What would it look like to understand when you choose to sin, to see Jesus already paid for that? And then after that moment of sin, you go before the Father, shame and guilt. And then to understand in that moment that He says, I love you. I forgive you. I've already forgiven you. I've already accepted you. You're my beloved son or my beloved daughter. Come and be with me. As we close, let me read this one quote from author Mary Healy that I pray defines us and defines our worship. Mark is saying, God's grace, that's undeserved favor. That's what we've talked That's that exchange. God's grace, God's sovereign and saving presence is exactly what we are witnessing in this story. When we learn to read the story of Jesus and see it as the glory of the love of God doing for us what we could not do for ourselves, in a sense, when we learn to look at the cross and see all of this, God's grace, may it produce this in us, that produces again and again the sense of astonished gratitude, which is what the true, authentic Christian life looks like. What would it look like for you and I to be defined by lives of astonished gratitude, understanding and responding to the lavish love of God, who has chosen to call you and I Barabbas, son, daughter, because of the shame and judgment that Jesus has taken upon himself. Let's now pray and respond to him. Father, thank you for this time in your word. Lord, thank you that we are going through your word in such a way that has built up to this point. Or that we have seen that we want a version of Jesus that, uh, that, that we can control, that we can decide who he is and what we're going to take and what we're going to leave. But because of your love for us, you have not really given us that option. There is one Jesus, there is one God. He has said of himself that he alone is the way, the truth, and the life. That no one comes to the Father but through him. So now as we all are in this moment, faced with the reality of our sin. And Lord, the idea that we would stand before the Father and either receive the judgment that we deserve continuing to carry the shame that we have piled upon ourselves and that has been piled upon us perhaps by others. 
and that we may very well try to justify ourselves, try to say, well, I've never killed anyone, well, I've, I've done the best I can, I've, my good has outweighed the bad, and hopefully in this moment, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we see the, how ridiculous that is, that, that, that we have no hope in justifying ourselves. And yet, Lord, may we look to the cross and see your love demonstrated that while we are your enemies, Christ died for us. That you allowed the Son of the Father, the true Barabbas, to lay down his life so that we may have life. So that our, sh- our shame may be, may, be, may be pushed away as far as the east is from the west. So now as we respond, may we come before you in repentance and confession hopefully in delight and in worship that we get to now call you Abba, Daddy, Father, because of Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.